0: It's funny, I'm actually reminded right now, we are creatures of habit and how quickly habits develop. Someone was talking about how uh, our online, our podcast of sermons normally come from this service. And I usually start each sermon on the podcast, they were saying with good morning. Like every time I listen to a podcast, you always start with good morning. But that's because as most of you know, we have four services on a Sunday, but we have two running at the same time. So there's an 11 o'clock service in the sanctuary running right now And then this service is just running, um, starts at 11.05. And usually I'm preaching at the 11 o'clock service early and then that ends and then um, we come to the back and if I'm running late, Derek is aging before us uh, as as it feels like. Um, And then I come in and so this is where I say good morning but I've already said good morning. And so I don't know how to begin except by telling you a weird story about the background of how covenant works and of the, sprint that I get to do across the patio and then come in here and act, you know, it's like, and now I'm calm and spiritual again, uh, because as this begins. But it's fun to be in here the whole time. Uh, I'm also, (laughs) uh, and Jerry and Derek will probably be excited for me not to be back in here again regularly. I'm gonna call an audible on the song to come after this. Let's sing Joy to the World again. Uh, What we're gonna be talking about today, that song just works perfectly. Um, with what we were gonna do. And I know we had talked about one that would work well, but let's just celebrate and sing that one again as we keep going. Um, Because today we are talking about joy, this Sunday. uh, That's the candle that Laura lit, is the candle of joy. And as we're doing in Advent this year, we're trying to kind of layer both what we're talking about on Sundays with what's being talked about during the week. And so the first candle we lent uh, two weeks ago today was the candle of hope. And in our daily Advent devotion, which I hope you got, if not, you can still get it online, you get um, get them emailed to you daily, Um, all the readings and the devotions for that week were around the theme of hope. Last week, we lit the candle of peace, and the readings from last week were all uh, daily readings and reflections on the concept of peace and what it means to experience peace in our life. And today, we light the candle of joy, and that's what the readings will, will follow this week is this theme of joy, Okay. The scripture passage that we're looking at today is from Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah is guiding us as we go through Advent. And this is a bit of a longer passage, but I invite you to listen to it and pay attention to this presence and this proclamation that Isaiah is writing about more than 700 years before Jesus' birth about the presence of joy in the lives of the people of God. Okay? Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fool, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would speak to us all, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, whatever dreams or hopes or doubts or fears, meet us where we are and speak to us today that we might walk out of here people who are Transform more into your image than how we walked in. We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, as we've done each and every Sunday, I think we wanna begin today by clearly defining the word joy, okay? We've done this with hope and we've done this with peace because these are words that are used often in our world and in our culture. They're not just the kind of private domain of the church, but when the Bible talks about these words, and especially as we talk about them at Advent, we wanna be really clear about what we're saying, okay? Because we might misunderstand what it is that joy is about. Because one of the things that's clear in the scriptures and clear in the passage Isaiah was talking about today is joy is, a, is about something more than an emotion or a feeling, okay? And that's important because sometimes when we sing joy to the world, the sense can be is that it means that we're not just happy, but we're at Christmas, we're really, really happy. That's what joy is, right? And it's not that being happy is a bad thing and it's not that it's the opposite of joy, but happiness and joy are not the exact same thing. And what we're not seeing is that extreme happiness has come to the world. We're seeing that joy has come to the world. Okay? And that's what Isaiah is writing about today. To get a sense of understanding the difference in happiness and joy, one of the, the people that spoke most to me is the English writer C. S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford, Uh, many of you know books, The the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that he wrote, wrote a number of other books as he was a, a professor at Oxford, and Lewis wrote an autobiography that's called Surprised by Joy, that's the title of his autobiography. He talks about in some of his writings, the difference in joy and happiness. And again, he doesn't say happiness is bad, but he says that we have to be clear that Um, what most people say they want in life is to be happy. If you ask them, it's like, oh, I don't wanna care about this or that, I just wanna be happy with whatever I do. Or if you ask most parents or most grandparents what they want for their children or grandchildren, usually what they'll say is they want them to be happy. Oh, I just want my children to be happy. If I could have anything in the world, I want them to be happy. And Lewis says happiness is good. But he said the problem with happiness is that happiness is something that you're not really in control of. Because happiness is dependent upon your external situations, right? Um, if, if, if you lose somebody who's close to you, if you uh, go through uh, a separation or a divorce, if you go through a difficult time at work, you're not going to be happy in those situations, right? So Lewis says that it, we, when we say all I want in life is to be happy, if that's your primary goal, what he's saying is what you most want in life, you're not really in control of. Or when you say what I most want for my children, I just want them to be happy. He says, well, there are guaranteed moments in life they won't be. Because the situations of their life aren't gonna make them just happy. And he said, while we certainly want happiness for each other, he said that what biblically we are called to most want is similar, but biblically what we're called to most want and pursue for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren is not happiness, but joy. And how he defines joy is that joy is the presence of purpose joy is the presence of purpose. That you can have incredible difficulties that you face in your life or that someone may face with you, but there's often purpose that we feel in the midst of that. So you can have joy even when you're not happy. So if you think about joy as purpose, as God's purpose for the world, you think about the cross, the central act, what we as Christians believe is the central act in human history. Why we celebrate Christmas is not just because Jesus was born, because the Messiah is born, the savior of the world is born. We're already looking towards the cross when we celebrate the beauty of Christmas day, because that is the central defining act. And we think about joy, if we think about joy as just being really, 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 really really happy, not just happy, I'm really happy, I got joy in my heart. If we think about it as that, the cross is not a joyful act. Jesus was not happy on the cross. But the cross is a place where there was purpose and therefore joy. Joy isn't a feeling. It's not like happiness squared. It's something that we can actually choose and pursue in life. It's the presence, Lewis says, of purpose, of God's divine purpose. That's what Isaiah is writing about in chapter 35. He's saying that as people who go through life, we understand that this candle is in some ways a declaration of God's purpose for the world. That's what joy is. He says that as the people are going to Zion, he says that you're going to see that in the desert where they are, this arid ground where nothing is there, all of a sudden rivers are going to appear. All of a sudden life is going to spring up. All of a sudden buds and flowers are going to evolve. That God's purpose in the world, even in dry, arid places, begins to work out. That as we are journeying towards Dion and says, and we're on this highway, this holy way, that as we are going along that way, we will see God's protection over us, that God's purpose is being worked out. This is what Isaiah is saying, that no matter what's going on in your world, no matter what's going on in our world today, that this candle burns. It is a declaration to all of the dry, arid, hurting, fearful, scary places in our world and in our lives that God's purpose shall be worked out. It is a celebration of that. I tried to think of like a more, like what is a more modern contemporary example of joy than just kind of saying this is what Isaiah was talking about about 3,000 years ago. And immediately what came to mind for me is a story that that many of you have heard, and it's about an individual named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we're we're on a tour right now of mid 20th century European authors and theologians. We started with Lewis, C.S. Lewis in in England, and now we're moving to Germany uh, where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born and where he was raised. If you don't know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he was born in the early 20th century in Germany. uh, At a young age, he was born to a kind of upper class family. His dad was a professor at the University of Berlin. Um, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer from a young age uh, was raised in church, as, as, all, as all good Germans at that time were, but uh it was more of just sort of going through the motions. But as a young adult, Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually found faith. He found Jesus. He was ordained as a pastor at a young age. He got a PhD in theology, I think at age 21. Um, so you know, he was smart. Uh he had that going for him. And he became a well-known writer and lecturer. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, uh, was hugely influential on me. His book about life together is about community. Uh, He he lectured and toured in America. He lectured and toured throughout uh, Europe at a young age. But in his 30s, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis came to power in Germany. And Bonhoeffer, like certain other Germans, at first his response as the Nazi regime of terror started to take over Germany. Bonhoeffer fled and he left. He actually went to America first and then he went to the UK and London, back to Oxford. And it was there that he lived for a little while and taught and lectured. But Bonhoeffer had a, had a premonition, had a sense of call about him. And his sense of call as World War II started is this, he said, He knew that this war was going to be bloody, and it was going to be horrible. And he said, in the end, what I believe is, I believe Germany's going to lose. But the loss will be absolutely destructive. And he said that anybody who's going to come back to Germany whenever this war ends and tell the German people what to do, they need to go suffer with the German people beforehand. He said, if I sit here in Oxford and write essays on this and give lectures about it while the German people go through years of suffering and then show back up whenever Hitler's gotten rid of, when the people are decimated and go, okay guys, I'm back, let me tell you what to do. He said, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus, at Christmas what we celebrate is Jesus enters into the world to walk with us, to suffer with us, to to be with us. And so in the beginning of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the only people, as folks were fleeing Germany, who went back to Germany. And while he was back in Germany, he began what he called the Confessing Church Movement. Now what happened is how Hitler took over, is Hitler took over every aspect of society, and one of the things he took over was the German church. And Hitler actually proclaimed himself to be the head of the church. Now, Christians from the beginning have said that Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. That's what we here at Covenant confess. But Hitler said, no, 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 I've got a new idea for you. I will now be the head of the church. And many churches, at least in kind of action, went with that, be out of fear and intimidation. But Bonhoeffer came back, and he set up what was called the Confessing Church, saying, no, we confess Jesus Christ alone as Lord. Now, that was illegal. And so what Bonhoeffer did is, is, is while he preached some in, kind of, uh, uh, in secret, he also set up an underground seminary. That was training other pastors and leaders, and it was illegal what he was doing. He was training them to not be a part of the official state church of Germany anymore. And in April of 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo and put into a German prison. He was held in prison for just about two years and in only about four or five weeks before the prison camp he was held in was liberated by the Allied armies, Bonhoeffer was hung and died. He died a martyr's death. If You go to Westminster Abbey in London, they have different places of martyrs and there's a place there for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was a huge loss for someone at a very young age for the world and for the church. But when Bonhoeffer first went to prison, his first hope was to be out quickly. You see, in Germany at that point, there were no trials. He didn't go to to get arrested and then you're put on trial. You're just put in prison. And he hoped he would get out soon. He wrote early on in April when he was arrested that he hoped he'd be out by summer. He wrote in summer that he hoped he'd be out by fall. And in the beginning of fall, he wrote and said, I hope I'll be out by Christmas. But about a week before Christmas, he realized he wasn't gonna get out. And what I have for you, we're gonna bring up on the screen, is the letter that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to his parents when he realized he would not be home for the Christmas of 1943. We're gonna read the entire thing, it's not too long. Um, There's a particular section we're gonna focus on as we think about joy, but I just wanna read this to you because it's an amazing letter for many different reasons of someone who is getting ready to celebrate Christmas in a jail cell for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Dear parents, above all, you must not think that I will let myself sink into depression during this lonely Christmas. It will take its own special place in a series of very different Christmases that I have celebrated in Spain, and America, and England, and I want in later years to be able to think back on these days, not with shame, but with a special pride. That is the only thing that no one can take from me. I don't need to tell you how great my longing for freedom and for all of you is, but you have for so long, for so many decades, provided us with Christmases so incomparably beautiful that the grateful memories of them are strong enough to outshine even a dark Christmas. From a Christian point of view, a Christmas in a prison cell is no special problem. It will probably be celebrated here in this house more sincerely and with more meaning than outside where the holiday is observed in name only. Misery. Poverty, loneliness, helplessness, and guilt mean something entirely different in the eyes of God than in the judgment of men. That God turns directly toward the place where men are careful to turn away. That Christ was born in a stable because he found no room in the inn. A prisoner grasps that better than someone else. For him, it really is a joyous message. And because he believes it, he knows that he has been placed in the Christian fellowship that breaks all the bounds of time and space and the months in prison lose their importance. On holy evening, Christmas Eve, I will be thinking of all of you very much and I would very much like for you to believe that I will have a few beautiful hours and my troubles will certainly not overcome me. If one thinks of the terrors that have recently come to so many people with the heavy Allied fire bombings in Berlin, then one first becomes conscious of how much we still have for which to be thankful. Overall, it will surely be a very silent Christmas, and the children will still be thinking back on it for a long time to come, and maybe in this way it becomes clear to so many what Christmas really is. Yours, Dietrich. Now this is an incredible letter for a number of different reasons, but this paragraph, as we go back one slide that I want us to look at, specifically gets at what we mean about this candle being a declaration in the dry and arid and hurting places of life, of God's joy, of God's purpose being worked out. A prisoner grasped it better than anyone else that God goes to the place, the stable, where others turn away from. For him, it really is a joyous message because he believes it and knows that he has been placed in the Christian fellowship that breaks all the bounds of time and space and the months in prison lose their importance. What Bonhoeffer is writing about here is what Isaiah is writing about. The declaration of joy, of God's purpose that will bubble up in even the most difficult of circumstances. And the joy, he doesn't write about happiness here. There's nothing about in prison going, this is just so wonderful. This is defining joy as purpose. Trusting in God's purpose to work out even in the most difficult of situations. So, I don't know about you, but for me, I need to know this candle's here. I need to know that this declaration is real. I need to know that it is real in our world today. I needed to know it is real in our country today. I needed to know it is real in my family today. I needed to know it is real in my own heart today. This declaration that God's purpose is being worked out and that Christmas isn't about just getting really Christmassy. It's about waiting on the promise of what will be. And the last thing I want to say is this. Not only is this a declaration, but this candle is also an invitation. And it's an invitation to all of us that joy isn't just something we wait on, but it actually is something we become participants in. One of, one of my favorite uh, authors calls that we are to become co-laborers with God, of joy. That this is the work of God in Isaiah, of planting flourish, uh, a flourishing people. This is the work that we see here in Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer became a participant in joy, even in prison. There are amazing accounts after this of his two years in prison of the impact he had on prisoners. He led a weekly worship service. That there were prisoners who came to faith. There were prisoners who were ministered. There were guards, Nazi guards, who came to faith in Jesus because of the witness in life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Their lives were changed forever. Bonhoeffer became uh, swept up in the purpose of what God is doing. And we are to view that as well. We're to take this candle, see it as a declaration in our world, but also to see it as an invitation. And this is what I'd like you to think about today as we close. How are you invited to become a co-laborer for joy, for purpose in this world? And I want you to think about it as we close based on the questions that we normally ask at Christmas. Okay, think about it this way. When we're really young on Christmas and like right now where we are, like the week leading up to Christmas, and for many of us here, and this is a cool stage in life and it's a great stage in life when you're young and when you're here, the thing we think about and the question that's on our mind at Christmas, especially we think is we're gonna bring us uh, joy and happiness is what are we gonna get? Right? Like, I remember that when I was young, it was like right about now you're kind of going, I think this may come. I don't know. I, you know, we're going to see what grandma does. I hopefully shouldn't knit a sweater again. Like, you know, we're going to see what comes in at Christmas and how that's going to work. And the thing that's on your mind when you get excited is what am I going to get? As we get older, our questions start changing. For many of us, we're in a phase of life that the question is not so much, what are we going to get, but what do we need to give? So we have to do a lot of shopping, we have to prepare a lot of food, we might host a holiday party, we might uh, have people in our home, we might have people coming to visit, we have Christmas gifts that we have to get, and so it can become a time where we move from what am I going to get to what am I going to give. I think the question that I'd like us to think about today and throughout this week as we think about joy is actually a different question than what am I going to give. I think the question that I'd like you to think about that leads us to joy is this. Who am I called to serve? Who am I called to serve? I think that's the question, if it's on our minds, that can lead us to joy. See, God doesn't start with questions of what, God starts with questions of who. Jesus came to forge relationship with the world. Who am I called to serve? Because it is in that that we see the flourishing of another. And it is in that that we get to become not just people that experience joy, but actual co-laborers. The holidays are a great time to do this. And it's also maybe the hardest time. Because when I think about who I want to go serve, I can volunteer somewhere, right? I can go like save, the, save the seals. I can go and like serve the homeless. I can go do all these things, all of which are great. But the holidays are a time when you're going to be with friends and family. And sometimes those can be the hardest places to serve. Sometimes the people we spend the most time with see the worst sides of us, and that can be the most hard place to consistently have a servant's heart. But the path to joy is asking with those whom we're going to be with, who am I called to serve? And if that question can resonate with us, then these can be joyous days indeed that we get to celebrate together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that your joy would be complete in each of us and through each of us in this world. We pray that your purpose, not just emotions and feelings, but that your purpose would be something that we seek to both experience but to live out ourselves. And that we do celebrate that in the coming of Jesus, joy, purpose, meaning has come to this world. May we sing and proclaim that now, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.